I did it myself. I love you. I love you too. Oh okay. God. Um. Well, shall we gossip? Yeah. Okay. Okay. okay, okay. That's a sold-out crowd in Auckland's basement theatre, laughing along to Snort, a weekly improvised theatre show. When was the last time you went to the theatre? For many of us, it's probably been a while. Some of us may have never been before. Theatre's never been a big moneymaker, but now more than ever, creatives and artists are worried about making enough to get by. The past two years have been hard on amateur theatre groups, which have faced financial hardship amid the heartbreak of cancelled shows. Artists and workers have spent the last two years of the pandemic struggling to find consistent work. And while government funding and support packages have helped... With the government announcing $121 million... $37.5 million available to protect jobs in the arts and culture sectors. Theatre is still struggling to get bums on seats and money in the bank. It has been very tough financially. We've had many times when we've looked at how are we going to survive. Kia ora, I'm Sarah Robson, and today on The Detail, in the age of COVID-19 and streaming services, New Zealand theatre is struggling to stay relevant. Can this art form herald in a new act, or will this prove to be the final curtain call? I was just in the right place at the right time where I had the hunger for it. People had the hunger to do things, even though no one was essentially getting paid. Nathan Zhou is a playwright, a Chinese Kiwi and creator of Scenes from a Yellow Peril, a new play exploring Asian identity, racism and privilege in Aotearoa. He's talking about how he ended up working in the theatre world. I mean, I had a very encouraging and enthusiastic drama teacher in high school, but I didn't even do drama all the way through. And Christchurch wasn't exactly known for its like strong, independent and diverse theatre scene. There was the court theatre, which I did enjoy going to every now and then, but I would never say I watched a show there and was like, I could do that. They could, that could be me. Or I, my play could be on that stage. It never really crossed my mind, frankly. Yeah, until I wrote my first play and I think it was 2013 and submitted it to Play Market. And they were like, hey, do you want to workshop this? And nothing really came of that specific workshop. But the opportunity to hear my words spoken out loud by actors was quite a thrill. And I thought, let's keep giving this a go. Tonight, our smiles leave mess in their wake. Like bull in China shop. Like China man in China shop. Like China bull in metaphor. (laughs) Scenes from a Yellow Peril has just finished a wildly successful season at the ASB Waterfront Theatre in Auckland. The production was a collaboration with the Auckland Theatre Company, or ATC, one of New Zealand's leading professional theatre companies. But how does something like this actually end up on the stage? Oh man, (laughs) it's so difficult. It's so incredibly difficult to stage a play at scale. And the path to staging Scenes from a Yellow Peril at the ASB Waterfront was so non-linear. In many regards, it's acts of perseverance and timing and luck and the right person being there at the right time and the right people being involved. Um, So that all up was about a four-year process to put on that play at the waterfront. And it was never intended for the waterfront as well. And it's such a can of worms. But putting on something like that is near impossible to predict how that might happen in New Zealand for a New Zealand playwright, if I'm completely honest. Unless the company 
asks you to write that with the intention of staging that, you can't really guarantee that will happen. So scenes happened through the fact that I wrote it out of my own volition. It was not commissioned by anyone. And then I sort of went through the process of workshopping it, developing it. And over those four years, different people saw it. It got readings and workshops that were open to the public. And eventually I'm very lucky that Jonathan Bielski, the current director of ATC, saw it and thought that was of value. And then we had conversations to essentially co-produce it because ATC didn't just license it and put on their own version of it. He enlisted the collaborators that I work with to co-produce it with the company. It's not the sort of play that they really have the cultural competency to put on by themselves, to put it bluntly. And I think they were very cognizant of that. By having the Auckland Theatre Company involved, what security or resourcing did that mean you have access to? I think, first of all, just the budget you get to play with is much larger than you as an individual practitioner can get access to. Because typically you're working to get an application to CNZ and get that approved, which typically if it's a single arts grant is capped at a certain amount anyway, like 75k. So no matter what you do, you're never going to have a budget of really much more than 75k. So unless you're working for a company like ATC, or there are smaller ones that also can access more funds. But the beauty of scenes was we had the CNZ funding that we got, and ATC also brought some more to the table. So we were working at a, you know, I've done shows for 7.5k before. That's sort of the kind of world that I'm typically playing with. And the, the amount of people you can get involved, the quality, the caliber of the talent, the scale in which you can do things in a space like the ASB waterfront. I think a playwright typically isn't given much permission to think big and dream big, and directors aren't either. So really, we got to do the play more than what we imagined, which is such an immense privilege. But before you got to that point of ATC being involved, was it a fairly hard road to actually get that creative New Zealand funding across the line? It's funny because we found it very difficult. Ankita and I, who's my main producer, we got declined twice before getting it the third time. And, you know, most people would have stopped applying after a certain point because it's quite dispiriting. When we asked for feedback, there was nothing wrong with our applications. It's just they decided to give the money to someone else. And it's sort of, it's a funny one because it almost sometimes feels like a lotto, even though it's not a lotto. But what happens is there are many good applications that just can't make it through because there isn't enough funding. The rounds are so limited, ultimately. And the reality is to do a show like Scenes from Yellow Peril properly, you need funding. Like, I think to do the arts properly in New Zealand and anywhere and pay people properly, you need funding. So Creative New Zealand, like it or not, when it comes to independent artists, they're essentially the gatekeepers. That's not something they're pleased about either, but it is a situation we're in because we have such limited ways for shows to happen. You know, you could be a very lucky playwright who ATC just picks up your play and you don't have to co-produce it or produce it yourself, but I've very rarely been in that situation. Bats used to be a bit of a flea pit. Before it became the the bats that we know and love, it was pretty grungy. Jonty Hendry is the General Manager of Bats Theatre in Wellington. 
But if you were to walk in now, because we're tenants and we have landlords from Wingnut Film, which are Peter um, Jackson and Fran Walsh, one of their um, businesses, they bought the building when it looked like BATS could go out of operation. BATS isn't the only theatre that's been at risk of closure in recent years. In 2018, Dunedin's Fortune Theatre was forced to shut its doors after finding itself in financial difficulties. Outrage, concern and tears have followed the sudden news this week of the Fortune Theatre being put into receivership. Leaving the lower South Island without a professional theatre. The board chair says the problem was simple, not enough people were going to the shows. Jonty was the creative director of the Fortune Theatre when it closed, so he knows how tough things can get. But at BATS, they've been lucky. The building they're in has been refurbished and they've got new performance spaces. A lot of people that used to work there go, oh my goodness, this is just so different than our experience. But at the heart, BATS has a grungy edge. And at the heart, although it's a flash premises, the real soul of BATS is about step, stepping up and, 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 and challenging the norm and, and trying new ideas, you know, trying things out. So I think what is really great about BATS for and what we hear from our audiences and what we really know that we need to hang on to is the idea that because our ticket prices are low and that was a really important part of the setup of BATS to make the work as accessible in terms of financial barriers as possible, that you don't mind taking a punt on the show. And it's almost like you go and see a show and go, nah, I didn't really like that one, but I'll come back next week and see what that one's about. By creating the community that you have around BATS, do the people coming through the doors are they going there for the experience of bats and it doesn't really matter what's on? They're just going because this is a fun place. Might be a bit hit and miss of what we see, but we're going to have a great time regardless. You see, we get that feedback from our audiences is that it is about emerging creatives coming in and trying their first gig. So some of the audience members may be mates. I mean, we have a lot of people that come and support their mates that are on stage, whether they work in the arts or not. But we also have a wide range of people. I mean, remember... We have small theatre spaces, so it's quite interesting to see that our spaces book out. People tend to rock up in the last 48 hours. They book or they rock up on the day, but we get a lot of full houses. And it's interesting when you sit there and go, my gosh, the demographic is quite wide, whether they be family members, whānau, or whether they're artists themselves. But a lot of them actually just want to see something that is, as you say, refreshing and new and, and has that energy of it being uh, maybe a little bit punk with a small P, you know, has a bit, uh, has a sense of it's not going to be dusty or museum theatre. In terms of increasing the diversity of what we see on the stage in New Zealand and that reflecting what New Zealand is now, how difficult is it to get productions across the line? I think it's increasingly more common. I think historically it's been absolutely quite terrible and there have been think pieces and Twitter threads and analysis done by critics and theatre writers over the you know last five to ten years that have really nailed down different large companies that are, you know, funded investment companies that are funded through CNZ that haven't reflected the landscape in which we live. Auckland Theatre Company historically has had a whole year of shows that do not reflect Auckland. That's ironic and it's hypocritical at worst and ignorant at best. And again, it's not, I mean, I guess that is a criticism historically. Here's John T. Hendry from Bats again. Peter Harcourt in his description around New Zealand theatre talks about how that we moved away from being the Britain of the South Seas in a way. So I saw theatre in the, in the mid-70s 
In those days, the professional theatre, in a way, was modelled a little bit on the British repertory system, and that had some New Zealand work, but little New Zealand work, and was trying to show the best of what's overseas. And I think if you were to to jump now four decades and think about it, I think the real energy now that, that, that there isn't the case of can we do it, maybe the question is how do we best do it to reflect ourselves. Now, by saying that, I think there's a juggling act. You can do Shakespeare and you can do Chekhov and they are just somehow, they, are, they, they managed to survive the decades. But the sort of work that I might have encountered in the 70s are by playwrights that your listeners probably most of them won't know. They're playwrights that had that moment in the sun because they're writing about something that was important from their perspective. And what's great is that the question now is, okay, if we're going to invest, surely we should be investing in the, the work that's reflecting us. And that's, I think, where the real difference lies. Back to playwright Nathan Joe. I think the landscape is changing and you can see companies like Auckland Theatre Company now with Dawn Raids. So the play is set in the mid-70s in central Auckland. With Haka Party incident. Who do you think is responsible for the racism in New Zealand? My play. Look at how bad I am at math, lol. Model minority, lol. K-pop, lol. Anime, lol. And I lolled, and I lolled, and I lolled really making an effort towards reflecting the city that the company represents, which it should. It it feels so obvious, but I think programmers are often scared that their main subscriber base will not enjoy these plays. But the future of theatre lies in a diversity of audiences and a diversity of thought and people seeing themselves reflected because you need to build new audiences ultimately, as well as respecting the ones you have ultimately as well. And I, I get that that's a tricky balance, but it's so nearsighted if you program only to cater towards your current subscriber base. I mean, theatre is a really difficult medium to cut through with because you're competing with so much. But the way to cut through is to actually have your pulse on the zeitgeist. And having your pulse on the zeitgeist is easier said than done, but you can tell when a company is trying and not trying. There have been conversations about declining numbers of people going to the theatre, accessibility of plays and, you know, and the performing mm. arts more generally. You kind of, you have you've touched on this, but is the way to ensure the survival of theatre as an art form to ensure it's reaching new audiences, theatre companies do need to break out of their box where perhaps they have catered to a fairly narrow audience base and the way to keep it alive is to actually be branching out, experimenting. One hundred percent. Programmers need to be brave and courageous and to move with the times. I think what's historically happened is we've had programmers who are stuck in their ways and think they know the answers or think they can just sort of write it out, whereas the last few years have proved that you actually, if anything, need to be more cognizant than ever. I think COVID has really thrown all the issues that the industry is facing into stark light. And if you're not building new audiences, theatre has no future. I mean, it's a simple fact. And I think we all know this in our bones, but to actually act on it with integrity is really difficult. I guess I've been very lucky in that working as the assistant programmer at Basement Theatre, I go, there are constantly new audiences who are hungry for things that we have not tapped into and that we're still tapping into. And people really do love live performance. There is something you cannot get through a screen. And there's something beautiful about, you know, the person next to you gasping or the collective sort of inhale of breath as something happens in a show is just such a beautiful thing. Who who was in the theatre for scenes? Tell me about the audience and the reaction. 
what was amazing was seeing such a wide range of people. I, I like to talk about how the, the kind of the two polls of audience members that I saw the most or really clocked the most were like young Asian females and older Pakiha women. Like those were the two most visible in the audience that I would always kind of clock. And also everything in between, but it was like such a range and such a range of young people who, after I talked to them, were like, oh, that's the first time I've seen an ATC show. Well, that's the first, I mean, this was much less, but the first piece of theatre I ever saw. And I'm like, that's friggin' incredible to me. And like, what an honour to also have that exchange between an audience member and myself. And in some ways, that proves the power of theatre. It is still relevant, despite the fact we're living in a time when we can, you know, head on to Netflix, search Mm. something up, watch something time and time again. Mm, Absolutely. And I think in some ways, the time we live in makes theatre more relevant than ever. As kind of oxymoronic as that might sound, I think it just means that the theatre that we see, the theatre that we make, has to offer something that screen cannot. And I think theatre can offer so much that screen cannot. It's just that when we try to replicate screen on stage, what we're just seeing is like a poor man's version. But really what we want is some sort of ritual. We want some sort of coming together, some sort of event that makes us feel alive and present and focused. You know, all the things that screen can sort of disengage us with ourselves sometimes, you know, I want to feel the bodies in space. I want to see and smell and hear and I want to engage. I want to be able to turn off my phone and engage with something that spans centuries of human tradition. I think that's a really powerful visceral thing that you can't actually name. You know, people are still going to gigs. People are still going to the theatre. It might not be at its all-time peak, but there is a hunger. You mentioned there about the experience of going to the theatre and experiencing something with, with a group of people. This is at the complete other end of the scale. But I saw Matilda on the West End in London. And I just happened to be sitting next to a probably four-year-old girl who was there at a matinee with her dad, and she was on the edge of her seat for the entire (laughs) performance. But that made, for me, it was a reminder of watching it from a child's eyes and Mm. almost seeing the magic of it Mm. from her perspective and watching her reactions, because that's what theatre is about, right? Absolutely. I find some of my best favourite theatre experiences or gig experiences are watching things through other people's eyes and that collective consciousness that you kind of start to plug into. You're not um, experiencing it as a lone person on an island. You're kind of gauging, you know, it's like when someone laughs and that causes someone else to laugh and someone else laughs. And that's why stand-up's so great because you, you get caught in these sort of laughing loops that you would not get caught in if you were watching it by yourself. How much of a reckoning has COVID been in terms of theatre in New Zealand? What impact has it had, particularly when you're talking about resources, development of artists and actually getting bums on seats? Because that's the thing, isn't it? Uh, Look, there is a little bit of a, we're noticing a reticence to come out at the moment, which is absolutely understandable given the the uncertainty. But I think mask wearing and and it makes a huge difference. And we have been really struck coming out of the 2020 lockdown with just how audiences flock back and they and you know and audiences are still going to the shows that are happening at bats they just there's just a slight drop so to to answer your question the the effect is ongoing and omicron uh, it has proven to be a different different beast shall we say than the last two years in the sense that omicron's impact means that a show might just 
almost get presented and then have to be delayed because someone is a is a casual is a contact a close contact and has to isolate or has the virus. Now there was drama all you could want when the Wellington Opera opened La Traviata uh, at the St James Theatre this weekend. At the last minute, two principal singers had to isolate due to COVID. Other cast members had to cover vocally, and the director and assistant director ended up on stage. Wow! And so what we're noticing is that it, there's a lot more instability. And if you look at the larger companies that are producing work, it's a lot more expensive because you have to look at your covers and your understudies and things like that. And of course, not to mention the cost of everything going up. So again, I I feel optimistic in the sense that I think the the sector is incredibly resourceful and has done really well. But um, I would be lying to you if I didn't say that the effect is ongoing. Actually, another impact um, is happening is that people, of course, are, are having to move away from the arts or are moving to more sustainable and regular income. And that is probably a re- that's a really important threat, particularly, you may have noticed in the papers recently, particularly for our artisans and our workers behind the scenes, our techies and the people that may not be on stage. But I know it's the case for artists as well that are in front of audiences. Okay, it's tough, but I know that the the I've noticed as well, we've noticed at BATS that the passion and the commitment to making work has not waned. It's come back in full force. We had two residencies to offer for the remainder of the year at BATS, and we had over 35 applications. Now, a year ago, it was quite different as Delta was hitting uh, and was about to hit. Things were a lot less confident. But the the confidence is back. It's about us managing the the circumstances, effectively lessening the spread of the virus through mask wearing and other measures and just recognising that that it's here for a while and we have to just work as best we can with it. Where do you see the future of theatre in Aotearoa? Fingers crossed, hopefully you're not the only one who is getting support to put on these productions that are bringing theatre to new audiences. Yeah, God, I hope not. I mean, I'd be lucky if I got another opportunity like this, to be frank, let alone other people. So I I hope ATC feel good about the reception of scenes and that encourages them to work with new collaborators and new voices and take risks. I hope other companies follow ATC's suit in doing so. I mean, the problem is I don't know who the, where the onus really lies. I mean, kind of goes all the way to policy and the government. I don't think it's really ultimately up to companies to do all the heavy lifting. In the same way, I don't think it's up to individuals to just persevere and toughen up and be stoic and just keep on keeping on. I think that's so difficult after a certain point. And all it takes is a bad day to quit, I think, sometimes. So, I don't know. I think... I hope audiences just keep seeing things, but also I know that's hard in the climate. I I genuinely think it's such a collaborative effort to continue making arts in New Zealand, performing arts in New Zealand thrive and prosper, whether that's the makers, the audience, or the facilitators for that. But I'm hopeful. I I think if I think too much about it, I get a bit (laughs) despondent, but I'm ultimately hopeful. That's it for today. I'm Sarah Robson. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders and produced by Bonnie Harrison and Mark Jennings. And thanks to Nathan Joe and Jonty Hendry. Matewa.